Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Tracked app. Try Tracked for one free year when you use promo code Zibby at checkout. Why would you use Tracked? You can have active screen time you can feel good about. Tracked is empowering kids to discover new interests, think more creatively and independently, and maybe even turn screen time into a healthy, okay, fine, healthier household habit. It includes peer-to-peer learning with classes taught by accomplished teens and influencers for kids ages eight and up, It enables kids to explore new interests through fun, thought-provoking classes designed to teach college-ready skills and allows them to connect with like-minded peers from around the world through clubs and trivia. You can also plant a tree through One Tree Planted, protect the coast through Surfrider, donate a meal through Second Harvest, and other philanthropic initiatives. Check out the Tracked app on the App Store, tracked.app. Sanjana Sathian is the author of Gold Diggers, a novel. A Paul and Daisy Soros fellow, Sanjana is a 2019 graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She has worked as a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with nonfiction bylines for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Food and Wine, The Boston Globe, The San Francisco Chronicle, and more. And her award-winning short fiction has been published in Boulevard, Joyland, Saltair, and The Master's Review. Welcome, Sanjana. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Gold Diggers. Thank you for having me. This is kind of a legendary podcast, so I'm really glad to be included. Legendary? I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) You have better blurbs than most authors do. But yeah, I really enjoyed your your interview too with Chang Ray. I'm like running behind him on all the interviews, so I keep talking (laughs) to people who have just talked to him, which is incredibly intimidating, but... I had so much fun talking to him. I kept like joking around. I, sometimes with like people who I feel like are, are really, you know, important or literary or whatever, I, I just have to like lighten the mood. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yes. So happy to have you tread behind him. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So Sanjana, you are only 29 years old and that is insanely amazing that you have written this novel, Gold Diggers, which is great. And like the cover, which is very festive and warm and inviting and someplace you just like want to hang out. That's sort of how I felt about your whole book. The characters are very relatable and you just want to sort of insert yourself into into the fray and not miss out. So tell me a little bit about writing this book and how you came up with the idea for it and the process of writing it and all of that. Well, thank you for saying all those really nice things. Yeah. So the book takes place half in the suburbs of Atlanta, where I grew up, the same ones that just flipped the state blue, (laughs) diversifying. And, you know, it follows this group of Indian Americans, second generation And they are in this just hyper-competitive kind of Asian bubble. And Neil, the narrator, very much like me, is both sort of trying to be a high achiever and also feeling internally burned out. And then he kind of happens upon this fact that his best friend has been stealing gold from other Indians in the community, turning it into this magical elixir that helps her steal the ambitions of the rest of the community. And as you know, it just follows that group of friends through 
2006 Bush era suburban Georgia. And so I think when I started writing that first half of the book, like that experience of my childhood had been with me for about a decade. And I had been trying to write about that experience of the suburbs for a while. And it was always kind of somber and just took itself really seriously. And then when I kind of found this conceit of something a little more playful, I all of a sudden was able to deal with a little bit more serious material in a way that was surprising. So this kind of idea of like estranging the familiar and then having a new way into the familiar. And when I wrote the second half, which takes place in Silicon Valley, I got to draw on my experience of living there in my early 20s, where I was just having lots of status striving anxiety, feeling like, again, a massive underachiever next to my friends who were working for these big unicorn companies and having fat salaries. And I was trying to be a writer. So there's definitely some material that I got to pull from my own life. So let's go all the way back to your, to your younger years. <laughs> so you went to Yale. Did you major in like, did you major in English? Did you take lots of writing class? Yes. Majored yeah. in English. I did. Okay. I did. And I actually did a little more nonfiction than fiction there. I didn't get into fiction classes the first like bunch of times that I applied, but I got into nonfiction classes with truly amazing teachers. Fred Streeby and Ann Fadiman were my nonfiction teachers. And then I got to work with John Crowley on my fiction thesis. And he has advised just like generations of wannabe writers. And those, yeah, those teachers, I think really shaped me. They made it, made me feel like I had the the right to be writing when I, all of my schooling before had sort of suggested that that was something I was supposed to do on the side. What was your primary, what did you think you were going to do? What was your main thing? Well, I always wanted to be a writer, but I think in like in high school, I was really into policy debate that took up my whole life. And so I always had this like second gen immigrant thing of being like, okay, I'll be a lawyer, but I'll write on the side. Like I'll have this like respectable career that makes sense to my family and my community. And I'll just be penning stuff in secret. And then maybe I'll be plucked from obscurity one day. And then I met these teachers who were like, no, this is a, this is a thing you can do. It's going to be really, really hard, but here's a little more about how to, how to do it. Wow. That's great. That's not, by the way, what my experience at Yale was like, because I got to Yale wanting to be a writer. And my first English class, I was like, I don't want to take all these classes that are required to be an English major. Like, <laughs> I can't remember if it was like 125 or 129 and you had to read. English poets. Right? Yeah. I was like, I, no thanks. No. <laughs> so I took a nonfiction writing class, which I loved freshman year. I remember that. I can't remember the teacher, but I still have some essay I wrote about like going whitewater rafting with my dad or I don't know, something. But then I didn't end up taking any more writing classes. I wrote on the side, but I became a psychology major because that seemed really interesting to me. So, but I kind of wish I had met some of your teachers. <laughs> I think it's really good to be able to spend time with material that isn't just like your own writing at that age too. So I was really glad that I did so much journalism because it's this like antidote to narcissism. You have to experience other people's lives. And I feel like psychology does a similar thing. It takes you outside yourself, which is important for a writer. Absolutely. I like that. An antidote to narcissism. We need more antidotes to narcissism in our current culture. I think <laughs> maybe we could make a list. Maybe we could brainstorm and put them on the whiteboard, you know, <laughs> send the TikTok stars to journalism school. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. That's a funny article. If you have any interest in writing it, I have a new, <laughs> I have a new magazine. Moms don't have time to write. So you don't have to be a mom by the way. <laughs> So 
Well, that's funny. Okay. So you went to Yale and you were an English major. You had these amazing teachers and then you graduated. And then what happened? Cause I know you got a bunch of fellowships. So what happened then? Yeah. So I was a journalist for five years. I worked at some regional papers. I did internships at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which I loved and the Boston Globe. And then I was struggling to find a job in journalism. It was 2013. The Globe had just been sold. Bezos had just bought the Post. BuzzFeed wasn't a thing yet. I was not a great journalist. And so I kind of couldn't get a job. And then I drove my car out to California to get a little vitamin D after years in New Haven. And I ended up getting a job in journalism out there finally. I was a tech reporter for about a year and a half. And then I got sent by the magazine that I was working for to India. And I got to be a foreign correspondent for about two years before going to graduate school. Wow. And then tell me about graduate school. Well, I moved from a city of 20 million, Bombay, (laughs) to a state of 3 million, Iowa. It was definitely a big jump, but I had a really good experience at Iowa. It's a really strange place, but so rewarding. It felt to me more like an extended writer's residency than like a set of classes. And I think that's kind of on purpose. The director of the workshop, Sam Chang, has made it like ethnically and socioeconomically and aesthetically diverse. And so I got to be in kind of rich company with other people who wanted to do the same thing. And that was so valuable. But I also just kind of locked myself away in the in the snowy winters and got to work on this book. And that was really, really extraordinary. So was this your project that came out of that? Yeah, it was. I was writing short stories when I came in and I sort of offered up short stories to workshop as like a ritual sacrifice because they're going to get kind of torn apart. But I spent most of my time on this novel, which came out of a failed short story. (laughs) Wow. Well, there's a lot to get into a short story. I mean, there's... Right? Yeah. Is that the fail- was that the root of the failure? <laughs> it's the, root of the failure of most of my short stories. Like uh, most of my workshops were just you're doing way too much. And I had a a friend who I was also living with who ended up being my roommate at Iowa who sort of looked me in the eye and was like, I I don't know if you're primarily a short story writer. You might not be very good at that form. But I think you might be a novelist, and that might be better. <laughs> wow. Well, that's great advice. How amazing. Pretty good friend. You have all these great friends. You're friends with the penguins and you're friends with the advice. And I don't know. That's pretty awesome. I love this opening line of not the prologue, but the first chapter when you wrote, when I was younger, I consisted of little, but my parents' ambitions for who I was to become. But by the end of ninth grade, all I wanted for myself was a date to the spring fling dance, a hot one. <laughs> That's a great intro. I mean, how do you not want to like keep going? That's like, I, I really think it makes such a difference the way people start off. I mean, I know this is like trite and said all the time, but I don't know. I haven't said it lately. And your sentence made me remember it. Let's just like, it's like how you, it's like as if you're throwing open the door to your house. What's the first thing you say to people to welcome them in? And do you see a smile or are you totally freaked out or do you want to run the other way? And I don't know, there's just something so inviting about it. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I think especially with coming of age stories, that ends up being so important. Like the like the opening of the bell jar, that was the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, or the opening of one of my favorite books, The Buddha of Suburbia by Hannah Qureshi. It opens, my name is Kareem Amir and I am an Englishman born and bred, but a different sort of one. And then he gets into what it's like to be the child of empire as half Indian and then also a British mom. And it's like these 
these people have to introduce themselves as new writers, but also as like young people trying to come into themselves. So I think those people were on my mind in the opening. I feel like you grapple with not only coming of age, but almost coming coming of identity in many ways, right? Coming of an identity in an immigrant community and what that feels like versus just, you know, going to TCBY, as you referenced, which I thought was amazing because that was like my favorite place back in the day. Tell me about that and how that mirrors or doesn't mirror your own experience. Yeah. Well, I'm part of, I think, sort of the second wave of second generation Indian Americans. We were basically banned from entering the country for most of the 20th century. And so the Indian diaspora as it exists today basically begins in 1965. And my parents came in the 80s. And so I was coming of age in the 90s and early 2000s as my entire community was coming of age. Right. And so I think as I got older, I realized that all of these anxieties I had about, you know, being totally undateable in the white South and also more serious things like what it felt like to be Brown after 9-11 and see my dad and my brother be harassed at airport security. And my mom tell my brother to like shave his beard and wear collared shirts to look as quote unquote respectable as possible. I saw how both of those things were not just my experience, but actually the experience of many in my generation, certainly not all Indian Americans. But I think I aspired to say something. I started out just writing about these goofy kids who, you know, are on AIM all the time and flirting on AIM and also unable to talk to each other as real people offline, dancing to Usher at school dances. I started writing about this stuff that was like, small and familiar. And as I was writing, I realized I was writing about a wider community coming of age. And from there, kind of abling to or becoming leveling a critique of the community that I belong to, that as we have assimilated, we have also taken on more and more power and privilege. And like, what does that mean now that we are a little more at home. What do we do with all that we have been given and all that we have worked for? What does it mean to be American now? How do you answer that now? (laughs) Um, Well, I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, in the last couple of years. I think South Asian Americans, a lot of Asian Americans um, operate in this like racial in-between space in America. And we're, we're we're treated as quote unquote model minorities. And that term is racist, both in the way that it strips us of the ability to be ourselves, be full, be mediocre, just be anything other than what the the majority tells us. But it's also historically been used as a wedge to drive, keep Asian Americans from getting along with Black Americans and Latinx Americans. And so I think as I wrote this book and started to be more critical of that quote-unquote model minority narrative as it is accepted by my community and pushed by mostly dominant white America, I I wrote myself to a kind of like political and moral space, which was like, we, we have to avoid being a technocratic insular elite and we have to find a way to be like in solidarity with other communities of color. We have to read our own histories, the stuff that comes before 1965, where we learn about how we weren't always model minorities. The first round of Asian Americans and Indian Americans in particular who came to the U.S. were unskilled laborers, were farm workers and worked in factories. And like, if we think about that history, does that change who we are today? And Neil does a little bit of this in the book, too. He's like thinking about the history of Indian America reading about the gold rush and 
learning that the picture of who we are today does not have to be the only picture. And I think that's exciting and empowering. That's amazing. And you can tell you did so much research. And I know at the end of the book, you have like pages of reference, not pages, but a very packed page and a half or so of, of all the source material you used for this book, which is unique in that it's a novel, right? So tell me a little about how you wove all that in and why you did so much research. Yeah. I mean, the research is basically for two different historical chunks of the book. There's stuff that draws on traditions of alchemy in India, China, and Europe, just to sort of get inspiration for how this elixir would work, what its flaws might be. Most of my ideas for how the sort of rules of magic in the book function, they they came from, from me. They were from my own mind. But then I started doing all this research into like Vedic alchemical traditions in like ancient India and finding that some of the things I thought I had imagined up on my own were actually real. Like people did consume gold and try to consume gold. So that was one chunk of it. The other chunk was this American history. And that actually started long before I was writing this book. When I moved to California, I learned that there was just a really rich Asian American history on the West Coast that I didn't know anything about. You kind of the only Asian American history you tended to get in high school classrooms when I was growing up was Japanese internment. There was nothing else. And when I moved out to California, I went on this walking tour that two friends of mine run in Berkeley. That's like this history of Indian revolutionaries who arrived in the U.S. around World War One. I. I started reading this these books about Bengali Harlem and Bengali immigrants who arrived in New York in the early 20th century and kind of integrated with communities of color, passed as Puerto Ricans. And this just truly blew my mind. And so when I was writing my own book, I was like, I, I want to have this textured history. And I ended up just reading about the gold rush in particular, because it was almost like it was on the nose. I was like, I'm already writing about gold. And finding this story of an Indian man stealing gold or accused of stealing gold in the gold rush and basically being chased down by a lynch mob. And I found very little evidence of this guy outside of that document. And so when Neil becomes a history grad student at Berkeley, he's trying to chase down more evidence of this man. And he's heartbroken when he finds that it's just really hard to locate yourself as an Asian American in American history. Even though you might have been here, you are just always floating in the periphery of historical vision. And that tells us a lot about why we feel the way we do in 2021 as Asian Americans. I love what you just said, floating in the periphery of American vision. I mean, wow, it like makes me feel like I'm at a school dance, you know, like being completely ignored by like the popular kids or something. Do you know, like the way you yeah, describe that? I, it's like, yeah. I very much know what that felt like. <laughs> that was my experience. Oh my gosh. I went to some dance in sixth grade and my mother had me wear this like ankle length Laura Ashley skirt, which you probably don't even know because you're so young. Oh, and, no, but, you know the brand? Okay. So it was like this floral skirt with like this matching like wool pink sweater and flats and a headband. And I was like against the wall, totally shy and being like, I do not know how I'm ever going to get off the wall. And my mother was like, just be yourself. And I was like, what? Who's that? Like, what What am I even wearing? You know, anyway. So yes, I relate to that as well. Um. <laughs> who is that is like the, the cry between mothers and teens over 
generations, I feel like. Yes. Oh my gosh. And now I have 13 year old twins plus two other kids. And I'm just like, I have to like do this right. I have to play it right. Like, I feel like I was 13 two minutes ago. So anyway, so what is coming next for you? You were doing another, are you working on another novel already? I'm a little superstitious about talking about work in progress, but I am working on something new. I What I'll say about it is that I'm writing from a female perspective, which is weirdly hard. <laughs> writing Neil was just natural. He he was like my more bumbling, goofy side, but also it, it felt, it just felt nice to put all of my stuff in the head of someone who is different from me and his inherent difference would change how I wrote it. And now it's a little closer to home, but I've also been writing a lot of essays, which has been really enjoyable to return to nonfiction after spending time in fiction. Awesome. Well, if you ever want to write for Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium, please submit a story. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Awesome. Any advice to aspiring authors? Yeah, I feel a little fraudulent giving advice because I'm so new here too, but read widely and don't just read the new hip stuff that everyone's talking about on Twitter. You should still buy debut novels like mine, but <laughs> read. I mean, I think it's cool to trace literary ancestry and try to figure out who the writers you admire today, who they admire and read them because that'll help you figure out who you're inheriting and like what your literary genealogy is. The other advice I give students is taken from Ann Fadiman, my teacher at Yale, who used to call us into office hours and make us defend word for word every piece we had, every every phrase, every piece of writing in the like thousand word essay that we had turned in. And she would have this like big fat Roger's thesaurus, which your podcasters can't see, but I'm holding up and help you find the most precise word. And when I do that to students, it sort of terrorizes and demoralizes some, especially those who really want to be writers, because they realize that they have to do all this stuff with M dashes and dangling modifiers. But you have to learn how to fall in love with that stuff as much as like your own raw genius. So (laughs) that was good advice from Anne that I'll pass on. Wow. Literary genealogy. That's another thing you should write a whole thing about. These are such cool. You just like throw in all the, I mean, this is great. You're like brilliant and I love it. And I could just listen to you and I can't wait to now see you're so like, you have so much ahead of you. So I feel like not that I'm that much older, but I just am like so excited. So especially as a fellow Yale alumni, I'm very excited that you're up and coming and just excited for what happens. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you. I'm nervous. (laughs) It'll be great. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and best of luck with everything. I'm going to keep my eye on you. <laughs> having me, Zibi. I really appreciate it. Okay. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Tracked App for sponsoring today's episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 